0: This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid Missouri's only in depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. After last week's mad dash with nine arts agencies popping in to talk about the moments of magic they had witnessed within their own organization and what they would do with a $100,000 donation, this week is much calmer in the Speaking of the Arts studio with just three of my fave arts people dropping in to share their year in review thoughts and, of course, the prerequisite minced pie. I thought we would take in the worlds of theatre with Monica Palmer, film with Stacy Pottinger and a general arts overview with my fellow arts journalist, the one and only Eric Danielson of the Columbia Daily Tribune. In many ways, 2022 feels like a year when, for the most part, we got back to normal. But there is no doubt that the past two years have left something indelible on all walks of life, including the arts. My arts diary has been back to pretty much pre-pandemic levels, and my three guests this evening have definitely experienced enough of the arts this year to help us look back over what made their arts year special. So curl up on the sofa, grab a warm drink, and let's journey back together through the arts of 2022. The first guest in the studio today is a man who writes so evocatively and lushly about the arts that there is nary a week that passes where I don't see someone reposting his Columbia Daily Tribune arts column with a commentary that they feel truly seen and understood. Eric Danielson is able to take a deep perceptive dive into everyone's creative output and hone in on the heart of it all. His Tribune columns always illustrate his profound empathy with arts makers across all the genres, but Eric's world of influence is so much greater than just the Tribune, and his essays and journalism are printed in numerous national publications. He describes himself as a Midwestern journalist, essayist and poet whose writing exists at the four corners of literature, human dignity, pop culture and Theology. Plus, he teaches at his alma mater, the University of Missouri. And having been interviewed by Eric for many, many years at the Columbia Art League, where he always saw things that I had missed, it is a delight to get to ask him the questions every now and again. Welcome back to the show, Eric.
1: Well, thank you. I I really don't think it can get better than that kind introduction, so I probably should just leave now. <laughs> I really appreciate it. <laughs> Quit while you're ahead. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> so I was thinking about how many people we both interview each year. And I wondered, how many people did I interview this year? So I went back through my show list for the year and counted them all out. And some people I talked to more than once, because they did multiple things like theatre people or writers. But I was kind of surprised to find that I have done 165 interviews this year. Wow. And I'm wondering, have you got a sense, because you don't only interview for the Tribune, you interview for other publications too. How many people do you think you speak to in a year?
1: That's a really good question. I have never counted. Um, <laughs> I bet it's a little bit less than that. I'm not sure because I write four or five articles a week. I, I've never really counted, but um, I know not all of them are interview generated. So I, I've got to think it's over 100, but I think you might have me beat by, by maybe a dozen or two. That's, that's a really <laughs> impressive number. So.
0: so when you look back over this past year of interviews, what are some of the ones that really have stood out for you?
1: Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that and I, and I know you felt this as well to some degree I'm sure is something that's cool about being in a community for a long time and and I felt this way interviewing you before that like you get to see people change and evolve and grow little by little over the course of a long time. And so, you know, while I'm sure I'm I'm, I'm going to miss some people that were that were really delightful to interview, you know, while I'm sure there were some really great new people that I've interviewed, I you know, it's been really cool to talk to people like Tracy Lane and Shay Jasper at Roots and Blues Festival or your station director now, Jet Ainsworth um, at KOPN, just people that I have had a reason to talk to for like at least the last decade. Mm-hmm. But that reason keeps evolving. And I don't know, there's just something really satisfying about that sort of relationship. And just hearing somebody say something that both surprises you, but also you can absolutely see the progression that got them there because you've been around long enough to see it. Um, So those are a few that just immediately pop out. But um, I'm always really gratified by the chance to, to interview anybody that's that's sitting across the table from me.
0: You really reach out around the country. I mean, you aren't only interviewing people that are here in town. Do people always say yes to you?
1: I think most of the time I haven't thought about it in that way that like <laughs> that they might turn me down. Gosh, now I'm, that maybe makes me a little bit more anxious. But I think most of the time I'm pretty clear with people. I guess I've developed a pretty good sense of being clear with people about the purpose of why we would talk. If I'm reaching out to somebody for a national publication or something outside of the Tribune, it's absolutely because I really believe in their work and, and have admired it for some time. And so I think it's pretty easy to let them know like where I'm coming from and and that there's a, already a built-in level of admiration there. Um, so, yeah, I don't think I get a lot of no's unless it's no, but how about later? I've gotten some of those.
0: What are the art genres? Because you write about so much. I mean, you and I both really cover the arts broadly. What do you feel most at home writing about? And what requires more of a stretch for you?
1: I mean, music is clearly, for me, a home base. I mean, I was a music major in college. And um, my first bylines anywhere outside of, you know, my high school and college newspaper were album reviews. I think that's the thing I feel most comfortable with. I love writing about visual art, but I still don't fully understand a lot of times the, the history and processes behind it. So that's an area in which I'm definitely more... Um, I, I, I tell my students at Mizzou, you know, that there's, there's no shame in, in asking someone to explain something to you like you're a five-year-old, you know, that if you really don't know what they're talking about, you know, I, I don't know how someone achieves this sort of printmaking. So I'm just going to ask them to break it down as simply as possible. So I think like visual arts for me has been over this last however many years I've been here, one of the sources of the greatest education that I've received, but also is something that I feel like I'm still just learning every day about.
0: That is amazing to me, because I think you write so beautifully about art. And maybe maybe you write beautifully for people who also don't really have a huge background in it. And so therefore, if it gets too esoteric and academic, then it just loses people But you write about it with humanity at its heart. So I think maybe that's why it touches so many people.
1: Yeah, I, I hope that's true. I, I think that might be true. I, I- I feel like it was maybe Joel Sager or someone else in town that I had a similar conversation with one time. And and they said something to that effect of like, you know, you're, I don't know, I guess I don't come to to uh, writing about the visual arts with any sort of baggage, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I want to learn all the time about the history. I want to learn about the movements. I want to learn about that. And there are so many great people in Columbia, like somebody like Hannah Reeves, who explains all that really articulately and intelligently but without ever being condescending i just don't have any of that in my background and so i think i'm writing yeah i hope when i'm writing about the visual arts i'm writing about it in a way that really connects to like the most common threads rather than trying to make sure i sound like i know what i'm talking about
0: (laughs) It's the trick all of us try and do, make it right. sound like we know what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Hannah, I love talking to Hannah. She has oh, such wonderful. a great way of talking about art that makes it so alive. I love talking to her about the master show every year. Yeah. I think that's just so fascinating, her insights into those people.
1: I always feel like it's a, it's a graduate level class when I talk with her, but it never feels like it's head only. Um, and I hope that's what I'm doing in my writing. And, I, and those are the kind of conversations I love to have where I walk away a little bit blown away by something I didn't know But I also feel like I'm nourished a little bit, right? Um, It's not simply a lesson. And uh, Hannah's, I mean, there's many people in Columbia who are like that, but Hannah's certainly near the top of that list of, of people who can hold that sort of conversation so well.
0: Well, looking back over the last year, let's start in the world of music where you have your greatest comfort level. What have been some of the highlights of your music listening year and some of the music interviews that gave you the biggest
1: thrill? Are you wanting to talk locally, nationally, kind of across the board?
0: I guess across the board. Let's talk about local and then choose a national person, maybe.
1: Sure. Well, I wrote something for The Trib this month on some of my favorite music from Missouri this year. And I guess I'll just highlight a few folks. I mean, there's far more in this article if people want to go track it down. Um, I don't want to sell anybody short. But a couple of albums that really affected me from this area... One is is Molly Healy's most recent record. Molly lives in Springfield, but she plays Columbia and and Jefferson City all the time. She might as well be a mid-Missourian. And she put out a record this year called Lotus. Molly is a great singer and songwriter. She also plays violin and cello and and just kind of has her hand on just about everything. And I really love when music can... um, Again, it's, it's that head and heart thing. You know, there's some really beautiful technique on that record, but also it's very earthy. It's, it's very heartfelt. It really hits home quite often. And so that was an album that really meant a lot to me. Another one that I really enjoyed, and, and I got to interview the artist early in the year, is the record Confidence Man by uh, William Russell Wallace, who's a songwriter here in Columbia. And he's a guy who also, you know, has, I believe, an MFA in literature and has written all kinds of short stories and fiction. And, um, his wife is a phenomenal poet who maybe I'll mention later. But that was another one of those interviews, kind of like we talked about where we're just talking about folk songs and rock songs. But I felt like. I got a really um, nice look behind the curtain at just how he thinks about storytelling and about writers that have influenced him and how that came to bear on the music. So those are a couple of local ones for sure. Um, you know, I'm struggling at the moment to think of of national artists that I interviewed, but I, there's been so many albums that have meant a lot to me on a national level this year. One of the ones that I'll be writing about, again, for the Tribune before the end of the year, is from an Australian band called Gang of Youths. I always try to make sure I get the pluralization correct there. (laughs) The album is called Angel in Real Time. And you were really kind to say all those nice things about me uh, when we started here. But I I think if I could sum myself up in uh, or maybe all of those things up in like a two word phrase, sometimes I feel like I am recklessly earnest in my approach to art. (laughs) And those guys are right there with me. It's a band that I think is very anthemic. They're incredibly earnest. They're very cathartic in their music. That's music that I need to hear most years, but I feel like it was especially true this year. Just really needed to hear that record early and often throughout 2022.
0: How much are you able to get out and go to concerts and events these days?
1: It's certainly not as much as either I would like or anyone would probably expect given my job. I mean. just the realities of working and teaching and then having a, a nine-year-old at home. I always often tell people, they'll say, are you going to come to this or that thing? And I say, well, it kind of depends on the mood of the nine-year-old roommate that I have um, a lot of times. <laughs> so I don't get out to as much as I'd like. I mean, I'm kind of a homebody for an arts writer. Like That's the one part of me that really doesn't fit this job well. So I don't get out as much as as I should, but it's it feels like less and less these days just because of I'm not trying to just blame my son for everything, but parenting and, and all of that. So I haven't quite gotten to as much this last year as as I would like, but maybe that'll change a little bit in the coming year.
0: I always persuade myself to go to a couple of things each year that I don't think I'm going to like, or that I feel mm. a bit on the fence about. I wonder yeah. if you ever do that too. And have there been any surprises for you this year in, in that zone?
1: I don't know that there've been any surprises in that zone this year, but I, I really appreciate that approach. I think that it's so easy anymore to try to shape our experiences you know and and to sure things and and only go to things that we think we're we're going to be satisfied by and certainly i've gotten to the point you probably feel this way too that i feel like i know myself pretty well at this point so i have a pretty good sense most of the time going into something whether i think i'm going to enjoy it or not But yeah, I do need to be surprised more often. So that's, yeah, that's good to hear you say that. I think I may need to keep that in the back of my brain a little (laughs) bit more for next year.
0: And I think in terms of things that I went to that I was really on the fence about that I would give a shout out to was an amazing pianist called Lubomir Melnick that was here in town for the Dismal Niche Festival. That was one of the concerts that I don't think I'm ever going to forget. And I thought he could just be completely crazy. I'm not sure if I want to go to this, but I'm so (laughs) glad that I
1: did. I didn't get to go to that. But that was one where I didn't know a ton about him. And I I wrote kind of a a preview of the festival. And I was just blown away by, by the recordings I listened to. So I'm sure that was a really cool experience in person.
0: So talk to me about poetry. That mm. is certainly uh, an area where I think you are very comfortable. And there were a couple of occasions this year where we covered the same thing, thinking of two books of poetry that came out in the fall by local writers. There was Talk Smack to a Hurricane yeah. by Lynn Jensen Lampy and Three Penny Memories by Barbara Harris Leonard. And poetry for me is the area that I struggle with. It's not something I gravitate towards. But the you that is really your native language. It, tell me about some of the poetry that has moved you this year.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting that you put it that way because I feel like it's been an acquired language for me. So maybe mm. there's hope for you, or or maybe it was at least the, <laughs> the at least it was a latent language that I came into. Um, yeah, I love both of those books that you mentioned, both Lynn's book and and Barbara's book. Another one, just again from Columbia, I, I mentioned William Russell Wallace a moment ago. His wife, Kaylin Capper Thomas, is just a phenomenal poet who's here in Columbia, have the opportunity to hear her read at uh, Skylark earlier this year for her book called Iguana, Iguana. And just a remarkable poet, one of those poets who devastates you with an opening line and then still keeps you on the hook, though, still keeps you there with everything. And and just really just this beautiful mixture in her work of dark humor and really heartfelt ideas. You know, for me, poetry is just like talking about visual art from you, I know that there is there's process and there's meter and there's all these histories of poetics. But for me, when poetry really works, it just feels like the most natural thing in the world, and so, yeah, I am constantly sticking my nose in a book of poetry, kind of trying to find inspiration. Um, I feel like just reading other writers always kind of refreshes my own mind and heart to write well, even if I'm not trying to write in dialogue with their work. And so in that case, poetry feels like essential to my work, not just essential to my life.
0: Mm there's a lovely line on your website you talk about how your favorite unit of reading is not books but sentences which yeah. really chimes with me because i often read a book and get trapped in a sentence mm. that is so beautifully constructed that i can't escape it i just keep going back and reading it over and over again like the postcard that you keep turning over and it says 10 over and you just keep on turning <laughs> the postcard over so i wondered if you have a sentence of the year
1: when you ask me that question that makes me feel a little strange i, I feel like um a person that has A sentence of the year. It it sounds weird when someone says it out loud, but I absolutely do. (laughs) And I kind of I want to give credit quickly. um, I believe her name is Jennifer High. is a novelist who came to Unbound a few years ago, and she said to me in an interview, she said, "I write novels so that I can write sentences," and that's stuck with me. And I think that's kind of where that idea comes from. Is um, I love writing articles, I love writing essays, but usually, if I were to go back and look over one that I've written years later. There's like going to be like two sentences that I just really still love and feel like the, the crux of the thing to me. But as far as my favorite sentence of the year, yes, and I'll, and I'll read it to you. It's from a a novel called All the Lovers in the Night, which is by a Japanese novelist named, I'm sure I'm going to pronounce her first name incorrectly, but Miyoko Kawakami. And it's this really small novel. It's only maybe 150 pages or so. I think it, it probably just clears the novella novel border there. But it's about this young woman who's really, uh, in her 30s, really socially awkward and and begins to strike up a friendship or possibly a romance with an older man. But what I love about the book is it talks often about light and dark, which is one of my favorite themes to explore on the page. And so this is the sentence from, from Kawakami's novel. But she writes, The light at night is special because the overwhelming light of day has left us, and the remaining half draws on everything it has to keep the world around us bright. I spend a lot of time in the evenings in Columbia and, and live in the central part of Columbia walking around my neighborhood, getting exercise, that sort of thing. And just really love, especially this time of year with holiday lights and stuff, just the 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 unity of light and dark. And I just love that idea that like the night is still working hard to keep the world lit and it's giving us everything it has in those moments. And and so that Kawakami sentence just, I, I mean, it's like plastered on my heart now.
0: That is beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> When you think back over the, the past year, who's your MVP? Or maybe you have a couple.
1: Locally? or Locally. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I always feel like I'm going to leave somebody out. A couple of people that stand out to me, I think I mentioned them earlier, but Tracy and Shay at Roots and Blues, I think mm. what they're doing is, is really remarkable. Not only have they built that goodwill locally, but now you know, acknowledged across the industry as two women who are doing really phenomenal things. I've been really impressed this year, too, with the work of, I mean, I'm always impressed with these two, but with the work of folks like Violet Vonderhaar and Phil Mm. Sean Johnson at Compass Music Center, I know that that's been a long time coming for them and they have really let that dream just continue to progress and evolve into this now brick and mortar space. And I think just their tireless efforts, you know, forget the fact that they're both really incredible musicians, but their tireless efforts on behalf of just like nurturing other artists and trying to really base what they do there on what they've learned over the years about what artists need, they're two other people that I really think a lot about as I think about the year here in, in town.
0: Yeah, they're definitely on on my MVP list. For the yeah, year, for sure. the top two spots. Yeah. When you look back in, again, the rear view mirror, do you see any trends emerging or departing <laughs> over the past year? That's a
1: good question. I think, gosh, that's a great question. I think two things that I think about... One locally and kind of one more broadly is just you know kind of new leaders coming in to steer institutions locally in Columbia. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about Jet at KOPN. I think about I know Kelsey's not brand new at the Art League, but you know was able to do art in the park for the first time this year in her tenure. Um, I think about Wilbur Lynn coming in, who I've I really enjoyed talking to a few weeks ago mm-hmm. uh, to be the new maestro at, at the Missouri Symphony. And you know I, I always tell people when I get on conversations with people that don't live in Columbia about the arts and culture scene here is that I feel like we've been really fortunate to have these trailblazers, whether it's David and Paul with True False or Richard King at the Blue Note, people who established something and just tried it to see if it would work, that then stuck around. And 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 we're, we have this thing, we're reaping the benefits from these these institutions that probably by right of our size and location, we probably shouldn't have, but somebody saw a need for it and did it. And it's been cool to me to watch over the years how these things, when they're really good, they stick around and, and they find the leaders that they need to to lead them. And so um, that's one trend I've appreciated locally. I, I think more broadly, really quickly, I'll say too, I, I think that there's this question or, or this conversation about us being back to normal arts wise. And I don't really think I buy that yet, Yeah. <laughs> especially when it comes to music. I've talked to a lot of touring musicians recently that have just talked about how that whole side of the world is not back to normal yet and and maybe maybe it is back to normal. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not it's not where it should be. We came out of the hopefully the worst of the pandemic saying we wanted to learn all these lessons and I think some things have kind of reverted back to where they were before which isn't necessarily good and I think maybe live music is one of those things where it feels really fraught right now with with ticket prices and with touring schedules and artists ability to make a living when that's often their largest source of income. So I'm, that's the one that maybe worries me. I, I like the, the, the first term that I said, but that one maybe worries me a little bit that we're not quite where we should be with that or, or maybe haven't learned all the lessons that we should have from the last couple of years.
0: Well, Eric Danielson, your presence and penmanship are such an asset to our arts community. And I hope you will continue writing insightfully about the creative process for many years to come and also pop in to chat with me from time yes. to time. You are someone I want to be when I grow up.
1: Oh, that's sweet. I am a great fan of yours, so it's always good to chat.
0: Well, don't forget your mince pie on the way out, so that's about
1: the door. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
0: Like Eric Danielson, my next guest is well known across a wide swath of the arts, having had a thriving photography business and publishing an award-winning, beautiful book of photography of centenarians titled 100, What Time Creates. She was also on the board of the Columbia Art League for many years and one of my trusty right-hand women at Art in the Park. Plus, she worked as the executive director for All Street Studios for a while and nowadays has the title of development director for RegTech Film Society. Society. The inimitable Anastasia Pottinger seems to know everyone in town. And now that she occupies one of the hot seats of film in the city, she has all eight fingers and a couple of thumbs on the pulse of cinema and gives a weekly film review on KBXR and KFRU. But tonight, she is here with us, wrapped in tinsel and bearing a plate of gingerbread cookies for me. Thank you so much, Stacey. You shouldn't have, but. Yum. Do you mind if I have one now? I mean, please go ahead. Mm. So good. good.
2: it's obvious my wife made them.
0: (laughs) Well, tell Linda they are excellent. (laughs) Thank you very much, Linda. I will. So while I devour this first cookie, let's start with a big picture overview. In your opinion, what kind of year has it been for film in 2022?
2: Well, this has been a rebuilding year. I think we saw some great films come out this year. I think... The industry is still regrouping and trying to figure out what it's doing coming back from the pandemic. You know, I think it's forever changed a a bit. The landscape of seeing films in theaters has changed.
0: So that being said, what was your question? (laughs) What kind of year has it been in film in 2022?
2: Oh, yeah, that. Rebuilding. It's been a rebuilding year with a couple of really great... Surprises. Yeah, there's been some really, really wonderful nuggets out there definitely people are producing films it is a way better year than last year but it's still definitely a different experience if you talk to our programmers they would let you know that it is not the same as it used to be three years ago as far as planning a schedule and knowing dates and really having people commit to those dates and is it going to come out on streaming uh, the same day as it comes out in the theaters you know what kind of run is it going to have in a the theater? and trying to just encourage people to come back and explaining why it's so much better to see a film in the in the cinema with other people on the biggest screen with the best sound possible lots more marketing than we've ever had to do before and just talking about the value of cinema
0: so you said there were a couple of big surprises what are those
2: Yeah, so I think uh, everybody in the indie film world would agree that Everything Everywhere, All at Once, which came out in April, was the smash hit of the year, I, I think, in my opinion, in indie cinema. It was distributed by A24. It is their biggest grossing film of all time. It stayed at Ragtag Cinema for weeks and weeks and weeks. It's what got people coming back to see movies. Did you see Everything Everywhere all at
0: once? No. (gasps) Diana! I know, I know. In fact, just the other night, I was looking it up online, and I can rent it online now. So, I mean, it's it's on my list of things to do over the holidays. And I know you're supposed to see it on a big screen, and it's not going to be the same watching it on the TV.
2: No, it's okay, though. I'll forgive you as my friend. It's totally fine. But... It's just a really great film. I mean, the the multiverse became a big thing this year. I feel like everybody wanted to escape where they were and dream about other things you could do. And this one just did it really, really, really well. Michelle Yao was a big deal this year. I feel like she's been everywhere. I hadn't seen her in years. She's fantastic. So this film, great film.
0: I have been really bad. I have to say I have not been a diligent follower of film for a few years and partly that is pandemic related but here's the kind of the weird thing true false always leaves this strange indelible mark on our film going because after we've immersed ourselves in documentary film for the weekend it feels really hard to go back to fiction and that pushes my whole summer schedule of film kind of out the window because I'm like well it's not a documentary I can't watch it is that just us or do other people tell you that too? I think that
2: might be just you. (laughs) (laughs) It's literally only Diana Moxon who has a problem seeing regular or fiction films after the fact. I don't know. I feel like I'm not sure that I've ever had that experience. But I will tell you, I have never done true-false like a regular person. I have never had the experience of doing it like you. So I've not ever experienced seeing 10 or 13 documentary films in one weekend because I was always a volunteer and now I work here.
0: So on that front, has working in film or in cinema, the cinema world, made you love film more? Or at the end of the day, are you just wanting to go home and read a book and not engage with cinema?
2: Oh, no, it has definitely opened up my eyes to the value of film for sure, 100%. I feel like I didn't have a lot of media literacy. I wasn't educated with a whole lot of media literacy somehow. I don't know if that's just become a real hot button issue in education, or if it's something that we just talk about here in the office, but it's not something that I feel like I knew about, even necessarily before I worked here. But now that I'm around people who talk about media literacy and it's something that we really champion and our education team is really working hard on that, I feel like I watch things differently. Mm. I also, you know, just as an artist, I felt like I didn't have a big art education so I really learned from being around artists at Or Street and being in the Art League how to view art differently than just nice, bad, like <laughs> it. You know what I mean? And having to <laughs> talk on the radio honestly has made me try to think more about what is it about the film that I like. Why did they make it that way? Why did they choose that person for that role the music, the scores, I've listened to a lot more and tried to value what are they bringing to this film? How are they making me feel? And been a lot more, I guess, objective about the films, critical, I guess, about films that I watch and and uh, what they're doing to me and why they're doing it and if I approve of that or not.
0: Right. So wearing your other hat of radio film reviewer for KBXR and KFRU, if you cast your eye back over the year, hopefully that won't be too onerous a task because you've said a lot already this year. So if you were nominating your overall Pottinger Academy Award for Best Movie of the Year, you might have already said this, but is it Everywhere, Everything, All at Once, or whatever the title is,
2: or is it something else? (laughs) Oh, man. I have to do one?
0: (sighs) It's so hard for me. You can do like a top three or something. That's okay.
2: Okay, I would say Everything, Everywhere, All at Once was a phenomenal film. Nope was another really great film that was not scary, but was... A wonderful film. Did you see it? No, No, you probably didn't see it. So Jordan Peele, fantastic filmmaker. This is a film that I would have seen a few years ago and just watched and said, oh, okay. But if you really think about what this particular person is trying to say with this film, it takes on a whole new meaning, and it's a powerful film about race and culture and filmmaking and, again, another very meta film looking at filmmaking and culture and what what they say to us, what they're doing and the history. A film and then Marcel the Shell with shoes on. That was adorable. <laughs> I I'm did see that. You, one. <laughs> that was a film that I feel like this summer gave us hope. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so that's another one that I, I really thoroughly enjoyed. And all the, the new Marvel films, I had a great time watching. Thor, really fun film. Stuff
0: outside of Ragtag, I do,
2: I do go see sometimes, too.
0: So, obviously, the best film is very subjective. I'm asking you what your opinion is. And I'm curious, if you looked at the ragtag box office sales, what film would have been the best film of the year in terms of what was the most seen?
2: Probably Everything Everywhere All at Once, either that or Marcel, The Shell With Shoes On, as far as how long they stayed playing, uh, held over at the cinema for weeks and weeks. Some of our older ones have done amazingly well, like... uh, Jennifer's Body was not a new film, and that one filled the cinema. Blade Runner did really well. Monty Python and the Holy Grail on 35mm. I did see that. That was a packed cinema. That was really packed. Yeah, so we're doing a lot more retrospective films and
0: series that have older films that we're bringing back. And they're doing really well. So as documentary film is so fundamental to your working life, what would you put down as some of your favourite docs this year?
2: Oh, wow, that's OK. I hadn't thought of that. Because do you want to know my system is? I save all of my ticket stubs when I go see a movie. And so I pulled them all out of my drawer and brought them with me. But I did also make start trying to make a watch list after I was on the radio I would have to say, as far as documentaries that I saw at Ragtag or in the, at True Falls, probably Fire of Love. It's a toss up, maybe. Fire of Love and The Territory were two of my favourites.
0: Fire of Love, everybody loved except me. Oh. I did not care for it. I kind of fell asleep. Give me a media literacy about it.
2: Can I just tell you a secret that you won't tell anybody because you're my okay. friend? Just between you and I. Uh, just between you and I, I <laughs> fell asleep the first time I watched it. <laughs> I was watching it in bed, which I watch most of the Truval's films. I get a screener to watch ahead of time and I watch it in bed on my iPad. And I, I wasn't super into it. I met the team. I met them the first night or at the airport sometimes that makes all the difference. When I know the people who've made the film, which is what's really awesome about True Falls, True. is the filmmakers are so accessible to people in the community. And after meeting them and talking with them, I really enjoyed the film and I saw it several times. And you know what was cool, what was amazing about that film, I thought, was that they only had images. All of the sound was created.
0: Right, that was amazing. They had to create the whole soundtrack. Yeah,
2: and then the Territory, I always fall in love with our True Life Fund film because it's one of the things that I champion as the director of development. So I spend a lot of time watching it and talking with the people who are working with it and the the folks who we are raising funds for. And so I really enjoyed that film as well. But that was one that I learned about music. And I, I remember speaking with somebody, one of our programmers, about it beforehand. And they said, I'm not so sure I like what they did with the sound. And I was like, what are you talking about? And they said they were really manipulative of the viewer with the sound. And I thought, huh. Huh. I didn't even think about it. So using music to make you feel a certain
0: way. Sympathy or dislike. Yeah. I feel like these days, most of the time, when I do want to watch a movie, my capacity to be on the edge of my seat and have tension is really plummeted since the pandemic. I can't tolerate it. Oh, yeah. And I just want to be comforted and amused. So in the zone of comforting and amusing films, what should I seek out from the past year that would make me happy? Other than Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, because I've already seen that. (laughs) It's like, wait, it's Marcel the Shell
2: with Shoes On. Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey. That was a documentary we screened at the cinema. I learned some interesting things, but I also remember just feeling a sense of real hope about life. So that was a a good one. The Duke, another just fun romp. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was probably a word that was in the dis- the description. Well, so you don't want to sit on the edge of your seat. I watch a lot of horror or scary films. I've never been able to watch horror or scary films ever. S- So I never used to be, but I'm pretty into it now. Mm. (laughs) I don't know what happened to me. But they're generally pretty funny, I think. So I've enjoyed going to see a few of those that we've had. Crimes of the Future is one that I really liked. It's not so much scary horror, but some body horror is a term I learned this year working here. Watch Thor. This The Thor film was really great. I mean, that's a film you don't have to think a whole lot through. <laughs> and, and it was beautiful. I saw it twice. I have two ticket stubs from it. So it's Taiko Waititi. And so his films are very visually appealing or masterful, full of a lot of stuff. And so that one was was a fun one.
0: Well, this is not really relevant to a year in review because we are in the festive season now, but I just wondered if you have a favourite Christmas movie. Oh. I guess it could be any festive movie. It doesn't have to be Christmas-related. It could be a favourite Hanukkah movie. Well, (laughs) my favourite. Is there a Hanukkah movie? Favourite Kwanzaa movie. I mean, be inclusive.
2: I like A Christmas Story. I think it's a classic. It's really good. And I like the new one that I did not write the title down but it's with Ryan Reynolds and it's it's a new
0: one. <laughs> okay, the new Ryan Reynolds Christmas movie. Yeah, it's another re- remake of the
2: Christmas Carol and I think it's called Spirited maybe. Okay. But it was really actually really delightful.
0: I have to ask you if you have seen a film called Rare Exports. I have not. Which is Finland's greatest Christmas movie. Okay, I'll watch it. It's a dark comedy. And so it's almost in the zone of it might be too scary for me, but it is the one that I've seen so many times that I know all the bad bits when they're coming up. And it is so adorable. The first time I saw it was at Ragtag. You did a screening of it many, many years ago. And I thought this might be the best Christmas movie of all time because it's about evil Santa.
2: Oh, okay, but it's not an evil film. Like, there's one out right now at the Megaplexes that's a bad Santa movie.
0: Good wins over evil in the end. Okay. (laughs) But it is such an awesome film. Thank
1: goodness.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And it's in Finnish. It is in Finnish, so you've got to be able to read subtitles.
2: That's fine. I love a film in Finnish. I've discovered how much I like listening to that language.
0: There's a lot of consonants in Finnish. Yeah. I studied Finnish. I know, you should go see Girl Picture,
2: which we're showing now. I think tonight is our last screening. That
0: is also in Finnish? Yeah, it's in Finnish. Okay, there you go, girl movie. Well, Stacey Pottinger, thank you to everyone at Ragtag Film Society for putting so much energy and love into our cinematic experience and for annually organising surely the best film festival in the world, certainly the best one in my world which admittedly is a world of one. But anyway, it's it's the best one in mid-Missouri for sure. I made you a festive chicken ornament with a rainbow tinsel scarf for your tree. So I left it by the front door. Pick it up on the way out. And can you let Monica Palmer in? I think I can hear her Christmas caroling outside.
2: Oh, she is. Yeah, I'll go get her and I will get the chicken for my tree. I don't know why you left it outside instead of (laughs) giving it to me when I gave you your gingerbread cookies. I
0: know. Just I didn't want you to forget it. So I left it by the door so you could pick it up on the way. Well, thank you so much for sharing your cinematic thoughts and for stopping by to chat. is a pleasure Finally this evening, I am so delighted to welcome back to the Speaking of the Arts Fireside Chair, the woman who sees more (laughs) productions than anyone else in Columbia, possibly even in Missouri and feasibly even in the world. Monica Palmer is not only an actor who I love watching on stage. She just finished up a run of steel magnolias at Columbia Entertainment Company and was in Shrek at the Lyceum Theatre in Ararok back in June. But she is an absolute disciple of the profession and I am so envious of all the students at John Warner Middle School who actually get to take theatre lessons with (laughs) Mrs Palmer. Thanks to Monica's social media posts I am able to vicariously attend theatre performances around the state and as far away as Stratford, Ontario and so who else could possibly take on the task of reviewing the year in theatre but my very good friend and the mother of speaking of the arts Monica Palmer. Hello darling. Hello, thanks for having me on. I put an extra cashmere a blanket on the chair for you and tom just <laughs> kindly added some more logs to the fire but let me know if you're warm enough as it is pretty ghastly
3: outside it's lovely this hot toddy is delicious as well <laughs> thank you very much for taking such good care
0: there's a warm mince pie there too just in case oh, you get a bit peckish nice. <laughs> anyway <laughs> we you. have to start with the big number which i feel sure you have mm. to hand how many theatrical productions has monica seen in 2022
3: I forgot to count. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Why didn't I do that? I knew you were, this is an obvious question that you're going to ask me. Exactly. That. So I don't know. Can I get back to you on that number? It's got to be, uh, it's near a hundred this year because I did my first eight day stint where I saw a production a day for eight days in a row. <laughs> and I don't know that I've ever had that happen before. And that was a little tricky because that was here in Missouri that wasn't as at like a theater festival where they were doing you know matinees and evening performances, but in in Stratford, ontario, you know that's that's my my jam, like going to a matinee and then going to a, an evening performance that night I, I do that alone because no one in my circle thinks that <laughs> that, that sounds pleasurable, you know so <laughs> but then my husband he'll go and play golf at four a m and he thinks that's a vacation, so you know. <laughs> We all have our thing, so theatre is my thing.
0: I would like to come with you to the Shakespeare Festival. Not because I love Shakespeare, as you know, I'm not a huge fan of Shakespeare, but this is going to be Shakespeare done incredibly well. And it isn't only Shakespeare, there are also a whole slew of new plays, and one... You posted about had a photograph of a giant slide that delivered actors from the backstage mm. onto the stage.
3: Yeah, it was a new play called Every Little Nookie, and it was so fabulous. It was hysterical, first of all. You would have been laughing... inappropriately like I was you know and it was just really brilliant staging and everything about it was so innovative and new. I I immediately thought of Greenhouse Theatre Project because Mm. I was like this is something Liz Palmieri needs to know about because it just had that vibe really new making you think it was great theatre right there.
0: And so staying in Stratford Ontario what was the the highlight of your Shakespeare viewing?
3: Oh, Hamlet. By I mean, it was this amazing production of Hamlet with a young, I think she was in her 20s, African American, beautiful actress. She was just phenomenal. Blew my mind with her energy for the part. Like, it just... It was like nothing I had ever seen before. It was just so intense and and amazing. And and this is after seeing Greenhouse's Hamlet just a couple of years ago. Mm. Was it a couple of years ago or was it, I don't even know. pre pandemic? Time flies. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but it was amazing. Everything about it was just so great. That's where you can go to see really good Shakespeare for sure.
0: Well, maybe I'll come with you next year. Please do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is a given that you see everything in Columbia and Jefferson City and you will regularly drive to St. Louis and Kansas City just for the evening for a show. And on occasion
3: to Springfield, yeah, Springfield has a great community theater, Springfield Little Theater. Go go see stuff there. They that's do too amazing far. job. It's too far. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's too far to go. <laughs> All right.
0: So it seems like asking you what your favorite production was would be an impossible question to answer, but I am going <laughs> yeah. to ask it anyway. If you could go back and see one show again from the past year, what would it be? Oh,
3: that's a good way to put it. Like, which one would I go see again? Because if you ask me my favorite, I won't be able to answer it. But if you ask me which one I would like to see again locally, like Missouri, right?
0: Yeah, like, let's say Missouri, yeah. Yeah. Mm,
3: Man. It's still tough. It's still hard. Um I really really liked and this is probably because I just really am a fan of these two actors and this play too. I had never seen it or heard of it before I went to see it, but it was just so brilliantly done. Subtle too. It was great. Um Brilliant Traces at Talking Horse directed by Ed Hansen, Natalie Botkins and Adam Britsky. I thought it was just beautifully done. It was a script I'd never read before or seen before. And I mean, it was one of those plays that just stuck with me for a long time Mm -hmm. afterwards. And I just kept like thinking about it. And when you have a director who knows what the heck they're doing and just really is insightful into humanity you know because that's what theater is it's the study of humanity and people and all of our quirks and foibles and all of that but you know you have a brilliant director and then you've got two actors who really dig deep into characters and do this great character work that both natalie and adam did and their chemistry was beautiful and it just i mean it impacted me i was just like i need to see that again and so yeah so that's my one that i would really love to like time machine back because it was so good
0: You've had a very busy couple of years, you've gone back to school, you have started teaching. So you just don't get to be on stage as much as you were a few years ago. And I wonder what you've seen this year that you would, you wish you had a chance to be in. Mm. Oh, man.
3: I loved No Sex Please We're British at CEC, but I don't think I could have added anything to that <laughs> cast. I think they were all perfectly cast, and I thought they just were hysterical. And as you know, because you were determined not to like it, you were just like, "Why another British farce?" You know, <laughs> and then they're going to do accents, and it's going to be horrible. And I was just like, "You know what, Diana, keep an open mind." And I think you you were proved wrong that it was uh, actually
0: definitely
3: was (laughs) yeah (laughs) but I just think that would be just a fun show to do because it just seemed like that cast was just having a blast on stage and those are my favorite kinds of shows to do where you know you forget that you're acting for an audience you're just having such a good time playing which is what I try to give my kids my my middle schoolers who do productions you know I don't really care if the audience enjoys the show so much as I really want these kids to have a blast doing theater because that's what gets them hooked and makes them want to keep doing theater is if they enjoy it and have fun so yeah that one and I also think um the things you least expect that was it at, at Talking Horse just because man uh, I would love to work with Kirsten I <laughs> just would absolutely love to work with her shout
0: out to Kirsten Maloney she was amazing in that role she's amazing in everything she does yes absolutely we don't see her on stage enough any longer yeah I would like to see more Kirsten Maloney on stage in 2023 in case you're listening Kirsten
3: <laughs> yes, please. Can we put in a request? Like, is, can we start a GoFundMe or something? Can we pay her to come and do shows or something? I don't know. But she was brilliant in that. And Christine Bay was as well. So that's the only other female part I could have played. And so, again, I couldn't have made any improvement to the cast that was. So, you know, I would have loved to have done it. But it was no less for not having me. So
0: <laughs> Well, I was going to bring up No Sex, Please, Were British because it was the one play that I saw this year that I really had to be dragged coerced, to, coerced into, and you and I <laughs> yeah. saw it together which was really fun mm. I, I'm so glad that you and I were together for that one but it was a production yeah that I was surprised and delighted by and so I guess that probably you have similar productions where you have either expectations or you really don't know what you're going to go into it's not something you know and, and, and you come out surprised and delighted so I wondered mm. if you could look back and see what was your most surprised and delighted production you saw this year
3: man this is going to be a tie because there were two There was the, gosh, the play that goes wrong at Capital City Productions. I was actually kind of a little scared when I saw that a community theater was doing this because I was like, this is a very like technical show and like things are supposed to look like they're going wrong, but they're not actually going wrong. They were meant to do that. (laughs) And I mean, the set is falling down literally around the actors. And I'm like, oh gosh, someone's going to get hurt at a community theater level. Like, you know, when there's not a, a safety manager or somebody overseeing the... The set build. So I was really kind of scared for that one. And it was brilliant. And also, you know, I'd seen this production in New York. And also, the new theater in Overland Park did it. And where else did I see it? I think I saw it like four times this year. But each time, it was really done really well. So that one I was really pleasantly surprised by. I was also really pleasantly surprised by Aida at um, mm. MU. They did a brilliant job with that show. And it's not my favorite show. And it's just, it's. I mean, the music is okay. You know, I think it's one of those shows that I think that um, a lot more people appreciate than I do. And, and that's fine. You know, I, there are weird shows that I like that other people don't like. But this one is this one that's never been high on my list. But this production of it, oh my gosh, just like technically brilliant. The lighting and the sound and the singers and the costume, everything about it was just so magical. We should
0: say that this is the Elton John and Tim Rice Aida, not Verdi's. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Correct.
3: (laughs) That was stunning. It was really beautiful production. I just was agog. It was great. And then we saw The Prom, too, was great there, too. And we saw that twice this year. Uh, At least I did. Uh, You you did, too. I did, too. Because you came to the Fox. Yeah. Right.
0: Beginning of the year. My first trip to the Fox Theatre, thanks to you.
3: Still can't believe you had never been to the Fox Theatre before that. That's so wild to me.
0: I know. And I was in tears (laughs) when we walked into the main hall. I had never Mm. been anywhere so magnificent. And I've been to loads of theatres in London. And this (laughs) just blew me away. Maybe that was the highlight, that moment of walking in there was, even though it wasn't the onstage moment, but it was the highlight
3: of my theatre year. Yeah, it was the highlight of my year watching your face (laughs) while you were looking at it, because there was just like, yeah, she gets it, she gets it, because some people I take there and they're like, oh yeah, it's kind of gaudy and it's this and that, but you really got the magic of it, so that made me happy. It's the same thing when something clicks in my students' eyes and they get something for the first time, it's just that joy of being able to give that gift to somebody else of that new Discovery. So it was nice.
0: It is amazing to me that you can see the same play, I mean, by different theater companies, but four mm-hmm. times in a year without getting bored by it. I mean, I did see the prom twice, you know, okay, which is unusual for me. Sure. But to see the play that can't go wrong four times mm-hmm. or the play yeah. that does go wrong, whichever one it is.
3: Yeah. <laughs> the play that goes wrong. Yeah. <laughs> the play that does
0: go wrong. I mean, you must see plays and you think, yeah, once in a lifetime's enough for that or do you not?
3: You know, this is why, you know, people always say, you know, you should be a theater critic, but I could never be because I can always find something new or something exciting about every production that I see, and you know, it's just like, I had seen one of the most brilliant productions of Hamlet ever, professionally done in Stratford, Ontario, and then weeks later I saw it here, done at Maplewood Barn Theatre, and I found things about it that were beautiful. You'd think that maybe it would suffer by comparison to the, you know, amazing production that I just saw, but were things that actors did that I was just like wow that was that was really great or you know just this this interpretation of it you know that's that's the beautiful thing about theater is it's never done exactly the same way and those choices are what make it so exciting and and those choices that individual actors bring and a director brings and then the technical artists you know it just it never gets old to me.
0: You mentioned in the play that goes wrong about the set about you know the set is supposed to be falling down and i and i think one of the components of theater that i always love to recognize are the stage sets and columbia Theatre has a brilliant set designer in Chris Bowling. Mm-hmm. Plus, when you've been out at the Lyceum Theatre in Arrowrock, there's the incredibly talented Ryan Zerngabel, yes. Mimi Hedges at MU Theatre. So tell me what sets have really wowed you the most this year?
3: Well, there was a production that I didn't get to see that was at the Little Theatre in Jefferson City. Live Spirit, directed by Tim Thompson, new to the scene in, in Jefferson City, but really a great human. That set, it it reminded me of um, Richard, oh gosh, I'm going to blank on his last name right now. But he used to do all the sets at CEC. He did the set for communicating doors and just it's just so amazingly detailed, like you you could live there, like you just like would open the door and you'd just be like, yes, this is a place where I would love to just move in tomorrow because everything is so perfectly detailed, like stenciling on the walls. And normally in theater, we say, that, you know, the rule is 10 foot rule, you know, as long as it looks good from 10 feet away, that's all that <laughs> matters. But these sets where people take time and like just the tchotchke, like the things on the tables and things like that are just like so... Amazing. So that was really cool. But um, the No Sex, Please, Were British, that was a great set. Augusto, Sage County. Oh, yeah. And then um, the, the show that we already mentioned, too, in Jefferson City, the play that goes wrong, that set was fantastic. So I mean... It's it's a skill I definitely do not possess. I actually just got made fun of this past weekend at Strike at Steel Magnolias because I, I think I called the pliers a pinchy thing or, you know, whatever. <laughs> so this is not my area of forte, but I know who does things well and I know who to call when I need them. So, yeah.
0: For me, and I guess for everybody, the truly... Magical part of theatre is when an actor is so immersed in their character that the real person vanishes and I, I often think that's harder on local stages because we know everybody and so it's yeah. hard not to see the vestige of the person that you know in real life and they're still kind of there in the character and I was looking back over my theatre programs for the year and I thought that for me the person who was the most unrecognisable was Alana Barragan-Scott as Violet Weston in August in Osage county I thought that was an amazing piece of performance and I wondered who would who would make your transformation shortlist list for the year
3: oh gosh yeah well, I mean Alana definitely she was fantastic in that role I'm so glad that she got to play that because that was one of those victims of COVID the pandemic you know they were all ready to go and then COVID happened so I'm so glad that she got to do that because that was a role that uh she could uh Say, you know, that's it. I don't ever need to do anything again because that was amazing. That was one of those lifetime achievements. I mean,
0: everybody was amazing in that. But, yeah, she was transformational.
3: Um, Yeah, I'm trying to think of who, who else... I really loved Murder Ballad, of course. And, and Megan McNew, I have to say that she was the first person I thought of when I was scheduled to direct that show before COVID. Like, when I first listened to the music, that she was the first person I thought of for Sarah. And she did that brilliantly. And I think that there were moments where I, I didn't even think of her as Megan anymore. She was just so much that character. So she did a great job. I mean, so many people do it. But you're right. It absolutely is difficult when you know people and you've done... Dozens of shows with them or seen them on stage a million times it's really really hard to um to see them other in other ways. One person that really surprised me was in Jefferson City, Ashton Nippenberg. She was in Kinky Boots that they did there. And she was so phenomenal in Kinky Boots and just blew me away. Her voice, I was just like, whoa, she's had this voice all along. And you know, that's, that's amazing. So that was, that was a real treat and surprise for me too.
0: Well, let's end with your thank you note to the 2022 world of theatre. What would you like to write in your thank you note? (laughs)
3: <laughs> Just thank you so much to everyone who supported the theaters when they were dark and ha- has been coming back out. I know we're kind of having to relearn this, you know, habit of going to the theater, you know, because we kind of got out of it for a little bit. But thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who has acknowledged and realized what an important part of of our lives, performance in general, but theater specifically is to us as a, as a society, being able to go and sit in the dark, with strangers and friends and go on a journey together and process and feel and understand how other humans work is, is such a, a great gift to the world. So I'm so glad that everyone has agreed and made sure that theatre has come back strong.
0: Well, here, here, Monica Palmer, I'm afraid I'm going to have to throw you out into the blizzard as our time is <laughs> up. But alternatively, if you want, we can just kick everyone else out of the Speaking of the Arts studio and crack into the wine cellar and open this box of chocolates that I have been saving for just this occasion. Will Russ mind if you stay <laughs> over you wouldn't not at all not at all <laughs> okay everybody else leave the studio now anyway as I was saying that's oh, adorable It's so cute <laughs> <laughs> That is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And, of course, you can always connect through the KOPN website at Mm kopn.org. Thank you to my guests this evening, Eric Danielson, Stacy Pottinger and Monica Palmer. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. finally thank you so much for listening this has been speaking of the arts and my name is diana moxon up next is two hours of jazz with mr t Sherif, aka the jazz broker so stay tuned to 89.5 fm kopn columbia i'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain until then stay arty missouri